Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. It's episode 481 of The Sausage Factory. In this episode, I interview Adam Ferrando of Wisdom War and ask them about the, how they created the shmup pinball crossover game Xenotilt, hostile pinball action. I might add echo to that. We shall see. You'll have to find out in the final edit. I have no idea because this is past Chris. Anyway, time aside, what is Xenotilt? sort of title it genuinely is a crossover between a shmup and a pinball game what's remarkable about it is not only is it beautiful and wonderfully designed of course it is because that's why it's on the sausage factory it's also just one table most pinball games have multiple tables but Zeno 2 only has one and you think well it's terrible no it's not and we go into detail in this show about why it's not I mean we really really get into the woods with this episode so if you like your real technical detail about game design this is the episode for you so music by the way is by charlie henrik as you can hear you probably heard the first snippet there's another bit another two snippets coming up and uh, yeah so should we just stop me wibbling on and let me and adam chat from the past the recent past Talk about how they made Xeno Tilt. Let's do that. Chris, please, take it away. Hello, Adam. Hello. <laughs> Can you tell us who you are and what you do? Uh, my name is Adam Ferrando. I'm a game developer, and I most recently worked on uh, Xeno Tilt, which is out in early access, and previously worked on a game called, well, the prequel, uh, Demon's Tilt, which came out in 2019. So I've been a game developer, I guess, professionally, I'd consider when I released that game. So you can add up the, the years. I'm, I'm not too sure. Okay. And uh, the next question kind of flows from the last. How did you make us start making video games? So my background was pretty much decided that I would do some kind of art, something art related to computers. So I went to school uh, at FIT in New York for graphic design. It was a, it was a two-year program. It was the, it was the only program with computers. So my mom is reading off the 
syllabus. I don't know the, 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 the description of the programs and it was the only one with computers. So I said yes to communication design because that computers. And then they had, they happened to have after two years, you could decide your bachelor's and they had a, a toy design program. So toy design being the, mo the most interesting thing and me having a, an interest in, in the entertainment industry and kind of being, you know, a little rudderless and, and stuff. I, I wanted to transition into toy design. So basically, uh, in my in my final two years in college, I, I was in a toy design program, and I started after graduating at Hasbro, the toy company. I worked in a a Blue Sky group there, which was a basically an, an internal idea group where I could work with my hands or and come up with concepts. And it was a bit of concept art, a bit of model making. But I spent about four years there and decided I really wanted to try my hand at. Uh, being a professional illustrator doing science fiction and fantasy stuff. So then um, this is me kind of close, like more closely becoming associated with games. And I, I worked on a few like mobile, mobile game card art. And, and I, I did a few illustrations and I did some, some concept work and I kind of realized I like the design work more than the illustration thing, which is, you know, I love to draw, but solving the narrative and, and the pure, like the, the just the visual, problem solving of of a of the illustration just wasn't hitting the kind of interest in, des in design that I really had and at that time I was hearing from every direction unity unity get into unity um, someone hired me to do some concept work that's Ralph which is my current co-developer slash publisher to do some concept art for a, a unity prototype and I was I, again I was hearing unity from all directions uh, on podcasts and and other interviews that developers were doing and decided to download it. And he, he was a big Unity advocate. Um, and there was a game jam called 7 Day FPS in 2014. And I think I worked on, that was the first kind of release and I collaborated with my my good friend, um, uh, Dan. And we, we spent the seven days making a FPS called MS2525, a uh, quote, murder simulator. And yeah, after that ended, you know, Dan has a job in software development for apps. I was like, yeah, let's keep going. Let's, let's, uh, and I continued to work on it. I couldn't stop. It. And he was like, well, I'm not, not that interested, but I stayed interested and continued to produce prototypes. And so Unity makes a really good impression at, at the time, or, you know, maybe still, I don't, I don't know, but it makes a good impression on artists. It basically accepts PSD, which is the native format for Photoshop as a file, right? through some kind of trickery. So me being natural with Photoshop and, and being a, a decent illustrator, you know, that that part already started getting my wheels turning. The, the part that was kind of missing was I can't write a line of code. And I, I it, this is kind of a problem <laughs> trying to make a game, but there was a, you know, Ralph, you recommended to me, you know, there's this thing called Playmaker and he knew somebody who had shipped a project. And what Playmaker was, was a visual scripting tool that lets you script what's called an FSM, which is a finite state machine, which happens to be a pretty complicated piece of logic. And uh, I guess it's a design or engineering pattern that is used to, you know, you can do like rudimentary AI, you can manage all sorts of mechanical systems. And it just, you know, opened up all these doors because before I felt like code was like, you know, the programmer is the arbiter of what gets put in the game. Right. And up until that point, I thought, oh, my God, like concept, like me being able to draw was my way of getting my ideas into a game. 
which it turns out is like the hardest way possible to influence the outcome of a game. Like 99% of this concept stuff I did just gets, you know, shelved. Nothing really happens with it. So I guess I'm skipping over some stuff, but I had another collaboration on, on a mobile thing. But, you know, at the time I was still developing multiple prototypes. I think I went through five, but the initial thing of Demonsville had started because it was the simplest way for me to kind of, okay, gravity is the enemy, right? And then everything else is pure mechanics and art. And it could be like, okay, this showcase for art, the the game uh, Devil's Crush was a huge, you know, inspiration on me. And I don't know, something about that game resonated with me to where I thought I could attempt to pay homage to this in a, in a respectful way and, you know, create create something meaningful because I was... You know, the idea was like, I, I need to scope down enough that I can I can handle this. And I guess I was looking for a process that kind of would lead me to some kind of result, right? And and not hit some kind of wall that I, I can't climb or, 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 or bust through or whatever. I could talk about if I could talk about for a second, like what that what that game means to me is like like I had been like a retro collector. Like, like there was a time, believe it or not, when retro collecting was a, a cheap thrill where if you got a Super Nintendo, you can buy your friends NES games, right? And then when you got a PlayStation, you can buy SNES games cheap. And that's kind of was the pattern that I had growing up. And I was always looking for like uh, at some point, I guess we're, we're talking about the, the creative process, but basically like buying stuff and, and looking for inspiration and consuming things like I was like looking for how do I say it? like looking for inspiration trying to curate like you know in a way it was like it was like a <laughs> it was like a creative off-ramp as a pejorative like it was it was it was not a good thing anyway wow I'm really getting a little a little mixed here but basically I was looking for like these hidden gems right and when I played that game it was kind of like end of line like I had found the game that I was looking for basically right <laughs> I mean there was really and then there was like nothing else I, I, I can't think off the top of my head I'm sure I could come up with a few but I mean, you know, and then every day, like honestly, like as I as I mine for inspiration, like I'm always surprising myself with a new film or a new or a new book or a new, you know, a new something to, you know, I, I like to start my day without knowing something and then end it with, you know, hopefully finding something that I go, well, that's that's really interesting. I didn't know about that. Anyway, that's a really roundabout way of uh, talking about my my uh, the inspiration there and uh, how that why that resonated with me. Yeah, and it, it answers <laughs> our, our next question, which is. Know what you believe are your creative influences. Certainly, you know, I do sure. remember a time when, yes, you're right, retro gaming was a cheap hobby. You know, if you're just collecting the last generation, there is still some argument for that. But if yep. it's two or three generations back, you can get yeah. a mortgage out yeah. Xbox yeah. games now. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I would just... collect, I was collecting Neo Geo um, and, you know, trying to get some obscure Dreamcast homebrew or whatever. I think what ended up happening and what I ended up realizing as I went in, I basically had a period from 2010 to uh, 2015. Like I was very hardcore focused on doing better art. Uh, and thankfully there was like an online support system for people who were like, Hey, if you practice art, you can get better. And I was like, what, you can do that. I thought it was just, you know, what you're born with or whatever. And so I fell into that and kind of one of the things that I lost in that was, was, kind of like abstinence or like a monk like to abstain from buying stuff and then replacing it with something creative right so i i I really got deep into pinball at the same time 
if if I had satisfied that need with buying a pinball machine, which I could have at the time that the prices were, you know, not unre not unreasonable. It, it could have happened. It would have it would have basically killed that project, right? So now, I, anything that I have a, a compulsion <laughs> to pursue or whatever, I, I try and replace that with uh, trying to make something. Okay, that's uh, that's you know inspiration enough, if you ask me. Sure. The mere act of creation. That's enough for you, Adam. Next question. What video game developer do you admire most and why? As far as ha- having a huge influence on me was probably Metal, you know, Metal Slug and that the the Nazca team, which I guess they're making, they're popping their heads back up for, for a new project. But I had heard rumors about like the um the like the CEO or or the head of the studio was basically also pulling all nighters and, and actually drawing the pixel art which I think turned out to be true and confirmed. But I heard these rumors way back, uh, you know, dates like zero four or something. I don't know. But yeah, Metal Slug, you know, huge inspiration, the, the quality of that art. And then something like VanillaWare, again, was like an art-driven studio. But that, I guess what, what I'm saying is like that satisfies like, you know, art leading the the process, right? And that's that, that's the effect that had on me, I guess. But what I really actually play is like... Uh, what I really played was like Diablo two <laughs> and uh SimCity was a huge one. But, you know, those two games and uh then a lot of online FPS stuff. So really as far as what I play, you know, aside from the retro stuff and arcadey things, but surprisingly FPS guns pointing at people. Uh <laughs> any particular like creators of those you wanna to point to and say, Yeah, they did good. Sure. I mean like the obvious ones like uh like it and, and Epic Again, like you would hear, you would hear these rumors about these development stories and how these things got made, and they were just kind of inspiring. So, yeah, those two, and then the early Blizzard stuff, and I'm, you know, I'm glad that those stories are out now. You can, you know, read a whole book about this stuff. Yeah, wonderful books. The whole creation of Doom and Quake has been well, well documented, and a lot of the uh, supposition is now faded because we're out in the open, at least as far as we're aware. Yeah, I mean, and those were all tech, right? They're all indie. Yeah, it's all indie stories to you know in the beginning anyway. Yeah, yeah. Last question of the first half. Here we are. What are you playing right now? Right now, it's just mostly playing development. I played a little bit of Spider Man too. Okay. Really, uh, I didn't. I I I I tend not to. I'm, I'm tending not to play stuff right now when I'm in development. Okay. With my head down. You know, a little bit of Spider-Man to um, through through development of of Demons till it was a lot of Apex Legends. Like that really got me through <laughs> the the last end of that development. So yeah, for Xenotilt, there was a lot of Call of Duty and a lot of Apex. But yeah, seriously, those are those are the things I I play. And then um, in a way, I'm careful not to look for stuff that might kind of step on like what I'm currently kind of exploring. That's fair. That well, anything you're planning to play? Because uh, I get it, you're in the midst of uh, finish off Zero Tilt because he is at the time of recording, currently in early access, but that will that will change soon. Um, but uh, but I th- I yeah, think, uh, anything I think when I'm done, I'd like to try Death Stranding again. Oddly enough, and I will need to finish the God of War Ragnarok. So those those two I have to finish. I'm a I'm a notorious not finisher of games. 
Not not my own projects, but other people's games. No, I get it. No, no yes, just to be clear, everyone, not his own games. No, far from worry. it. Yeah. Don't worry about this. Yeah, but it's uh, no, I, I, yeah, there are two fine titles to delve into them. I'm sure you will <laughs> soon rather than later. Right. Well, that's the end of the first half of the show. Move on to the second half, where we shall be delving deep to Xena Tilt. First question, before we actually delve into Xenotilt, I'll ask you, you may, describe for us, what is Xenotilt? Right, so Xenotilt is a game in early access currently, with aims of me finishing it before the end of the year, but it's a it's a video pinball hybrid. It's a, you know, top-down video pinball, you know, with sprites, huge uh, boss, you know, screen-filling sprites that kind of marries bullet hell elements with pinball, meaning uh, there's turrets that shoot bullets at, you know, swarms of alien enemies. And it's a, it's a score attack. So like traditional pinball, you are racking up a score and competing on a leaderboard locally with your friends. But I think that's a concise uh, description of it. It is. And we're going to delve into more facets sure. of Xeno 2 as we go through. But um, one of the things that I... And this is my first design question, by the way. So, sure. One, I'm a big pinball fan. I do love my pinball. I'm sure. rubbish at it, but I do like it. Pinball FX is one of my favourite games the last 15 years or so. Mm-hmm. And you know, some of the tables are better than others. That's always the way. But mm-hmm. there's one mechanic, one thing, one, should we say, method of playing pinball that I only picked up when I started playing it recent years, not when I was a young, young child, is the the idea of basically gathering up the ball, just grabbing mm-hmm. it by actually letting it fall, and you push the the paddle up and just let it sink to the bottom of the paddle and go. Okay, I've got the ball now. All right, cradle. Yeah, 
trailing the balls. It's mine. Mm-hmm. I've got control of this ball. Not the other way around. <laughs> no. Although we all know that volleying is a very good tactic and in, when you're playing pinball. You don't always have to volley. It's good to actually gather it. Now, one of the things I've found with Xenotilt, and indeed the previous game, but especially Xenotilt, is when you do that, things happen. Like the turrets go firing off and that kind of thing. It's basically mm-hmm. encouraged. This behaviour is encouraged. And for me, when I used to when I played pinball, most pinball tables don't seem to want you to do this. <laughs> and it's like, could you like, you know, not gather up your, your everything up and cradle like mm-hmm. this? But Zeno Two, you really sort of embrace this. And I have to ask, why? So kind of kind of two ways. I do like a game that, you know, you can just keep shooting because you know there's a difference between playing a physical table in a in an arcade and putting quarters into it versus this home game basically where you're you could be on a couch or on a portable device but basically you know the money you paid you paid the ticket already so you're you're free to play at you at your own pace and so kind of that kind of changed and informed a lot of the design decisions so i did want to Yes, encourage people to be riskier because one of the things I don't like is in a physical table in in multi ball the risk for draining because it's so hard to keep the ball in play um, is too high to not trap up all the balls and keep one in play right, which kind of defeats the point of multi ball. If 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 the if the meta of physical pinball is trap the balls up during multi ball, that kind of you know multi ball. People flipping around multiple balls is like what, just suckers, like like amateurs. So I wanted to, you know, use a combo system to encourage people to keep flowing, right? So I, I wanted to use like a combo system to keep people to encourage them to to keep the flow up, to keep the pace up. But at the same time, uh, on the other end with with Zeno Tilt, I wanted to also encourage cradling, right? So excuse me, I had this turret mechanic in the first game. I wanted, but I wanted guns somehow. I wanted shooting. In Demon Silt, but I couldn't figure out where to put it. You know, I, I didn't want to introduce an a, an action button, right? Because it's 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 just too much to keep track of. You know, you're flipping around. That's mostly what a new player is doing is just keeping the ball in play. So introducing an action button, they have these these buttons in in physical pinball now. They have a big center button. Nobody knows what they do. <laughs> People just hit it when they're about to drain. So I didn't want to do an action button. So I stumbled across cradling the ball which is encouraging good play, right? And then nudging down would activate the turret. So it sounds unintuitive, right? But the way I kind of relate it is in in fighting games, you have back to block. And when you first heard about back to block in Street Fighter, you go, where's the the block button? Because it it didn't make, it didn't really make sense, but it's encouraging good play. You're, you're, You're getting away from your opponent and that's also piggybacking on this block mechanic. And it, it's stuck with us. You know, some games have a, a, have a block button, but mostly back to block is stuck around. So nudging down to trap the ball and, f- and firing a turret to clear the way is kind of like, you know, having it both ways. I'm, I'm encouraging them to slow down and, and have good play and taking that little bit of respite. And then the turrets clear the way and they, they can get back to business. And that would create a kind of flow. You know, flow can't just be a linear rise or a, or a stable line it has to be a you know the roller coaster as far as as far as how they're feeling now I'm gonna, my next question is relates to what we just discussed and player behavior manipulating it in a negative way 
but encouraging good play, as you just mentioned. Cradling the, the ball in pin, uh, in pinball is, you know, an established method of getting better scores. You can take control of the ball, as we've established. But one of the things I always balk at, because I'm always thinking, oh, I'm just cheating doing that, is tilting, actually tilting the table. Zeno tilt says, yeah, do that. Yeah. You know, just do it. <laughs> Just please, just do this, which I really struggled to do because I felt like I'm tilting. Um, that's, that's that's cheating. But then mm-hmm. the clues in the title of the game, Chris. <laughs> you know, right, so, it's go on. So in 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 physical pinball, right? They have to stop you. Not, moving the machine has become part of the game, right? Yeah. But, but to stop a player from literally lifting the machine and having their way with it, you know, <laughs> walking it over two feet, they introduced a tilt meter. Because they can't control how hard someone is moving the ball, but with a pinball, with a with a video game, I can just control how hard the ball goes. Like I, I control, I, I know where the ball is. Um, I know when you nudge, how long ago, and so it's on a cooldown. So your first touch on the ball from zero cooldown gives you a very powerful nudge, and if you do it again, I just don't give you the power. But, you know, you it, it, it will incur the penalty of bringing you closer to a tilt, which is extremely generous in both of these games. Uh, the namesake, the tilt namesake, I mean, it's tilt as a penalty is I don't want to say it's an afterthought, but it's because nudging the ball as basically movement, it's tuned to allow you to move as much as possible, only in a way discouraging, like, how do I put it? a way of playing where you're just not directly because otherwise they would just be directly controlling the ball, which is not what you want. So it's uh it's just a tolerance for how much they can, they can move the ball. Uh, as far as the cheating thing, no, it's definitely not cheating. It's definitely integrated to the integrated into the game. And I think for me, when, when I learned what nudging was the game of physical pinball opened up to me in a way that was like, you know, it's, it's the game suddenly revealed itself as having this, this depth that before just didn't exist. You just think, oh, it's just flipping. It's just random. Maybe it's reactionary. But the nudging part gives you that bit of control that sets it off, basically. Yeah, I you're, I agree. And if you do it, you know, in moderation, <laughs> and it's not aftertouch, everyone. I just want to make sure the listener understands it's not the same as aftertouch, like sensible soccer or something. It's not the same. You are- sensible soccer. <laughs> Of course, the Sensi reference. Okay, <laughs> so I I found out what Sensible Soccer. We don't have any any Sensible Soccer here, but I found out what it was right. at some point, and I had to learn what Aftertouch was, and I was like, that's pretty interesting mechanic. It is. Uh, it's not quite Aftertouch. I mean, it kind of. I mean, you can. I mean, certainly after you shoot the pinball, you're you're influencing it. Uh, it's but Aftertouch is a great interesting mechanic. It is. It is. <laughs> we had. Dungeon golf uh, on, and that has aftertouch in it as well. So that's a what's it called? Lo- Dungeon golf. Uh, Dungeon golf. Uh, yeah, it's a lovely game, big party game, which is quite silly. Works so well in multiplayer, but does have aftertouch in it to the ridiculous extent where you can actually curl the ball yeah. right into the ball. I think I think the the reason aftertouch wouldn't work is it's more like steering, I guess. Like yeah, you'd be steering the ball. So you know, I have to keep with the nudge. Oh, yeah. metaphor so you it's just like a it's a touch on the ball to uh to get it to where you want it and also get you out of trouble that's yep. initially what um inexperienced players like myself still i regard myself as like i'm in trouble hang on there you go 
Don't do that. Yeah. But one of the things you get away with in video pinball is, you know, in the physical game, you can't really nudge down and you can't, you can kind of, I mean, you can push the machine up, but not like this. Like no. in, in video, pin, in, in, the, in, in my games, you can nudge the ball way up to make it faster or nudge it, nudge it down to make it approach faster mm. or, you know, stall it as it's coming down by by nudging up by the way uh for people who don't know that the control controls in this are absolute it's not inverted like uh pinball arcade or, or pinball effects yeah uh, but you can invert it if you want it's in, you it's want? in the yeah, menu yeah. next question and there's something that really amazed me because it's such an ingenious design because what i'm about to say might come across as negative everyone but it really isn't but ultimately xeno 2 occurs on one table is anyone sure and it's just this single environment. But what happens to this environment changes a lot. And as you're interacting with various objects and aliens and boss monsters, it's split into approximately four sections. It's difficult to mm-hmm. see sometimes, but I would say it's four. And the yeah. larger section is really at the top, at the bottom of the board where you're trying to, you know, you're, you're initially you're trying to defend yourself, but in that space... I'm gathering myself and actually optimizing to see how I can actually put myself in a better position when I go to the middle and then the upper part, and then the small component right at the top where you're bashing away at the the uh, the queen creature there. And it's just it's ingenious because you don't put effort into the actual form of shape of this thing because it's there, it's static. But mm-hmm. what happens inside it changes dramatically. So I just want to ask. Yeah. What was your decision about making it in this this single environment? And how have you found designing the experience within this confined space? Yeah. So it it is really hard because people will in the marketing of it, right? And and in the pitch of it, it doesn't sound attractive. It's one play space and it it's it sets up a preconceived notion about that there's too little to do or something, you know, but the reality is if there was, you know, two, two play spaces, they would have 50% of the effort put into them. But for me and just the way I think, um, and first of all, it's, it's, it's being true to physical pinball and the, um, to, De- to devil's crush, you know, paying tribute to that is being true to this idea of one static play space that, um, yeah, it's, a, it's the totality of the game is in that space. Um, it, it's like a, it, it's a weird analogy, but it's like a grand, it's like a, like an elaborate grandfather clock with little doodads and like mechanical toys. And these are, these are things that I think are interesting. Um, you know, I, I think sculpt, I think sculpture is interesting. Um, things about architecture are interesting, but I think I probably would have failed if I had tried to, you know, if I try to work on a linear game with levels, right. And it wasn't me being able to dial in and, and carve out the single play space that I would I would lose the plot. It's just the way that I that I think, or it's a, it's a way it's a process that I've found can can bring me to something something successful. So I would probably always work inside of a score attack paradigm for whatever my next game would be, versus walking from one end of the map to an exit walking from one end of the map to an exit. I just don't think that that would be good for me. You know, it's almost comforting when I'm playing it because at least you know that that border, that shape is what it is. You, you, there's little surprise as regards to that, but what's going on inside, that's what's fascinating. And then managed sure. to contain this 
powder keg of all sorts of stuff popping off constantly within this shape. And you're just going on and on. And it's right. just somehow you said that you haven't made different levels, but I would counter that by, by actually, you know, you did by as the longer you play, the more things right. it change. Goes through a, it goes through like a, it should feel like it's opening up and changing. Yeah. Uh, a lot of that stuff was stumbling upon something that worked and then kind of chasing the thing that's successful and, and, and just having it kind of emerge. Cause it was really, the first game was a really long process of just figuring, figuring it out, everything, right? Yeah. My, my first game, aside from having done prototypes, my first commercial release, figuring out everything in, in the same project. So I basically live on that screen <laughs> in that space for the first game. I mean, definitely three years. And then this game ended up being three years plus. But I think it's good for me who likes to, I ended up, I, I ended up finding out that I don't really like to split my focus. And so focusing on one thing and being able to see it uh, totally is just, just ends up being good for me. A last question to you, and it all flows from the Ganitsas or jump from to the other, is that the thing about pinball for me is when you really know the table and you know its triggers, you can actively aim and predict what's going to happen before it does. So you can create cascade events. And that's the sweet spot, I call it, of actually knowing the table and actually exploiting all the mechanisms and the interactions you have. And some are way more complicated than others, but they still generally follow this pattern. Xeno Tilt does delve into this aspect quite heavily. But for me, Xeno Tilt actually goes in much further because these cascade events turn into more cascade events and almost mm -hmm. change the table into something else. Can you mm -hmm. talk us through the design aspect of this and how did you prevent yourself from, shall we say, feature creep? I'll answer the feature creep qu quickly, but uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll just answer feature creep because I think it's a little disconnected because what I think of feature creep is like, you know, you're you're coming up with ideas out of, out of scope. For some reason, <laughs> people are accepting them until, you know, they pile up and it's, this can't happen, but the way that I work and tend to work is first of all, I won't present anything to my partner to begin developing that I don't think deserves to be there. I'm very conscious about, and, you know, stingy about, you know, what deserves attention. So we won't, I won't develop something that doesn't have multiple uses kind of. So, so that's, that's, that's kind of feature creep is basically stopping it before it starts. And what one of my kind of ideas is like anything good that is small can scale so if i can come up with something that's narrow and, and focused if it's interesting and good then yeah it could be a bigger system right and that's how things like the perk system evolved and there's going to be a new system called the survivor system it, it, there's going to be a ex mode is going to have what's called the ex survivors which is a system that's built on the perk system which is the idea that you can go in and rescue you can go in and rescue characters that give you buffs, right? And then you can assemble a, a team of hires and they will have, you know, discrete buffs that you can apply to your game. And eventually you'll have an entire matrix of survivors that you've rescued in, in EX mode, right? So that's, that's, that's the, that's a feature and stuff that I'm working on now, but that, that came from a place of being extremely economical about and, and breaking it down from, from, from go of what these characters really are and not to, be reductive about what it is but it's uh 
you know, the survivor system is basically a portrait, a, f- a flavor description, and then a mechanical change that, you know, a light cheat code basically that that when they're activated that they enable in game, right? So it's very reined in. It's not like a skills tree system, which was like massively blown out. <laughs> like this is, you know, this is simpler. But that was a, a short answer that turned into a long answer. What was the original question? Well, the ultimate question, well, the original question the was because one, one yeah. leads into the other is basically, yes, you prevented feature creep excellently, but also how did you find designing these interactions and these cascade events? Okay, so one of the core ideas is that if, if you play if you play normal pinball, you might know about modes, which is like you could light you light a mode and then that mode exists and usually and it depends on the designer but there's mode stacking or there's no mode stacking right so meaning you can't enter this you can't trigger this multi-ball maybe if you're if you're in this mode or or this mode can't co, co- isn't going to overlap with the other one in in, in demons tilt and xeno tilt every every nearly every mechanical system is agnostic to each other meaning like when this is active this other thing can be active you can run you can run every multi-ball mode in the game at once and other than deciding what music and what light show to show and and gets priority there's nothing really preventing you from not doing that right so making those all play nice together is an interesting challenge because it's like an overwhelming it's overwhelming the players so uh, i'll talk about the the way that the perk system came about and the perk system is basically there is a nine ball multi-ball matrix right and originally i just (laughs) I just wanted to have a nine ball lock for some reason. It looked interesting to me. We're going to do, we're going to go down this avenue of a, a nine ball lock. As I was developing the game, um, I came up with all these mechanics with from the, the turrets and like this, this laser thing. And there was a lot of mechanics, nine, nine of them, maybe even. So what I found was basically I had nine volume switches that were all playing at 10 or 11 all the time so you would start the game this is when when it's in alpha or whatever this is three years back or whatever you start the game and you were instantly overwhelmed and i said there there needs to be some way to control these volume sliders eventually they're all allowed to play together and hopefully it sounds like a symphony or intentional but so 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 to answer the question yes they they were all running at once but i realized that the, the amount of noise needs to be controlled by Porting them off or, or metting them out. So in Xeno Tilt, you can have nine perks. They're usually not all going to be active at once. Um, but as the player builds up and unlocks these systems and stuff, their bandwidth can kind of expand for what they can, uh, what they're absorbing or what they're conscious of. And then suddenly they're not so much concerned with this system and they can kind of put it on a shelf and, you know, get focused back on flipping and stuff. So is, is that good? Yeah, I think it certainly helps with the enhancing the experience of having one thing play against the other and you're storing up this ridiculous set of, like I say, skills and abilities that just make things get even more complex yet manageable. It's really interesting, but only through repeated play does that become comfortable. Yeah. So now I would say instead of starting at a 10, you know, it takes a minute to get to a 10. I mean, it still starts off pretty intense from go. But seriously, like if you had played the earlier versions, you would be like, what is going on? Because it basically starts you in the end game. Right. Um, <laughs> so Xenotilt has been developed by uh, Wizard War. That's a great name. Where's it Thank come you. from? Uh, it's short for Wizards and Warlocks. 
Right. Which is just it was a it was just a joke. I mean, I think you've heard of like wizards and warriors, but just yes, a joke. I mean, wizard and warlock is the same thing. So, <laughs> so that's that's what it's short for, and that was my ended up being like my handle, and then ended up being my co- my company and uh, I guess the the label that it's released under. Yeah, and uh, it's published by Flob. Yes, uh, I couldn't. I I could I could try to explain where he came up with. I think I, it, it's his name is ralph so it, it's not a play on his name i guess he he would use flarb as a, and it's not larb the, no. i think vietnamese it, it was just a variable that he would use when programming and someone told him that that's funny and <laughs> he registered an llc <laughs> it's like a random like when you're playing a tabletop rpg and someone says oh what's that character called on a bartender called flarb yeah all right that works and uh, what platforms is Xenotilt available on, sir? Right now, it's on. It's in Steam Early Access, and then you can expect it to be on video game platforms that you'd expect to find games on. You know, Demon's Tilt was out on everything, right? So Xbox, yeah. PlayStation, Switch. We, you know, we plan on duplicating a lot of the things that work for the first game. So cool. Okay, Adam, it's been wonderful having you on the show. It's been really okay. great talking in great detail about all sorts of stuff. So, Adam, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Genuinely has. Thank been you. Very open and honest with the design and creation of Xenotilt. It's a remarkable game, everyone. Do go and have a play of it. It's fantastic. I've lost a lot of hours to it. And uh, it's it's not a pinball game. It's, I don't know what it is, but it's an awesome game. That's what it definitely is. Thank you so much. Thank you. Xenotilt, what a game. I really loved chatting to Adam. He was very open and honest about the creation of an extraordinary game that I highly, highly recommend. Now, next week is episode 482, and we'll be featuring Space Salvage. It's a VR game. I played it on MetaQuest 3. I first encountered it at EGX in 2022, all that time ago. And it concerns the trials and tribulations of a salvage pilot and an operator in the far-flung future of corporate greed. Yes, it's all very sat- satirical. Good stuff. I'll be talking to Stefan Senior and Corinne Wilson of Fruity Systems, the creators of Space Salvage, about how it was made. So until then, cheerio! You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash cane and rinse for early, extended and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube and at our website, caneandrinse.com. <laughs> <laughs>